We're looking at a, a very well-known psalm today, a psalm that's about repentance. And um, I'm going to give a little bit of context for it, and we're going to dive right in because there's a lot to go through in this psalm. But you'll see in the superscription in this psalm of Psalm 51 that it says, A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with, with Bathsheba. So that reference gives us an understanding of when David penned this psalm and the context for it. And I'm just going to give a little reminder of it, um, of what happened as recorded in Second Samuel in this infamous um, story between David and Bathsheba. What we see is King, King David really sinking into uh, great depths of depravity in order to satisfy his lusts. And really the story seems to come straight out of Days of Our Lives or any other cheeseball soap opera that... Um, you could possibly come across. And what's described in Second Samuel is we find King David lazing around on the rooftops of his palace. And he, he sees Bathsheba. Now he's doing this while his men, his soldiers, his servants are out there in war, fighting for their lives and fighting for their country. And King David um, sees Bathsheba and he ends up taking this woman to be his own, uh, instead, of t- instead of taking any other woman he could have, because he's king, uh, to be his wife, he takes another man's wife, one of his soldiers' wives, Bathsheba, and he ends up being with her, and she becomes pregnant. And so in order to cover up this pregnancy, he calls Uriah back, Bathsheba's husband, again, one of his soldiers, he calls Uriah back, gets Uriah drunk, and sends Uriah to say, go, go be with your wife. He's hoping that he could pass off Bathsheba's pregnancy with him as a pregnancy that Bathsheba had with her husband, Uriah. But Uriah turns out to be a far more righteous man than David. He essentially says, you know, my fellow soldiers are out there fighting for our country and I will not go be with my wife. And so David, having failed to cover up his adultery with this conniving little plan, he goes even further to cover up um, his adultery. He essentially sends Uriah to the most dangerous part of the battle, or the forefront of the battlefront, and he calls his army to withdraw from Uriah so that Uriah is left essentially defenseless on his own. And so Uriah dies in battle. As if Uriah's death, essentially at the hands of David, is, is not bad enough, you'd have to think in order for David to carry out this plan, how many other men may have also died as a result of this setup to put Uriah to his death. I mean, really, if you think about all of the intricacies of what David did, not just the adultery, but all the things that followed in order to cover up the adultery, it's really such great treachery and betrayal and sin before God. You really couldn't almost imagine um, lower that David could sink. And so it is in this context, not just adultery, really adultery, murder, treachery, lies. It is in this context that David penned this really great psalm of repentance after Nathan the prophet was sent by God to rebuke David. Again, this psalm was written maybe in one of David's most wicked and low moments in his life. And it's also given to anyone else who would read it after David to teach us what repentance is about. 
And it's powerful in that if we understand that if God would forgive David even at the depths of his murder, adultery, and treachery that, and, and then still call David a man after God's own heart, then certainly all of us also have hope, no matter how great we feel our brokenness is or how great our sin is, that God would forgive David means that we too can have confidence to come to God to seek forgiveness, to seek restoration. So let's dig into the details of this psalm to see what God teaches us about repentance through David's psalm and example. The first thing that Psalm 51 begins with is is give us the reason for why we can come before God to repent. And that's simply that God loves you steadfastly. Verse 1, David calls for mercy according to God's unfailing love. And you may have heard this already before, and I may have said this before, but I don't tire of saying this. This Hebrew word for for unfailing love is hesed. And there's really no one good English word to capture the meaning of hesed. It's been translated as unfailing love, as steadfast love, as loyal love. And and those are all good and adequate translations. But really, I would say hesed encompasses all of those meaning, unfailing, loyal, steadfast. And it's even more profound than that because God's hesed love is rooted in the covenant that God made with his people, the Israelites. And so, for example, we find in Genesis 15, God made a covenant with Abraham a covenant based on his Hesed love. And this covenant was a vow that God made upon his own being that he would uphold to Abraham's descendants, Israel, the great nation. Now, I would say in our modern culture, vows just don't mean as much as they did in at least biblical times. And so when we hear God making a vow to his people, it may just not mean that much. I mean, some reality TV shows, for instance, have really, I would say, trashed the sanctity of marriage. I mean, really, who gets married through a TV show like The Bachelor? Um, And what's their success rate at this point out of 40 seasons of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette? Like five marriages still going after 40 seasons? And I can't decide why this show is still so popular. Maybe, I don't know, maybe millennials are tired of dating through dating apps and Bachelor seems better, so continues its success. Or maybe marriage and marriage vows just don't mean as much anymore. And it's funny, when I marry couples, I insist that they make vows to one another. None of this modern, like, 10 reasons why I love you. I love you because you're hot and Instagrammable. I love you because you're my favorite person to Netflix and binge with. Like, none of that kind of nonsense vows, like real vows, vows to love in sickness and in health. I'm sorry if I just offended anyone who made vows like that in their wedding. But that's my, if I marry someone, that's what I insist on, that you actually make, you can write your own vows, but make sure they're actually vows. But let's not just, you know, pick on TV shows or vows we make at weddings, you know. We, we make vows at church too. You know, we make vows when we become members. And how seriously do we consider those vows or do we just think, oh, I just have to jump through the hoops, you know, to become a member. Praise God that he's not like our TV shows or us fickle human beings that when he makes a vow to his bride, the church, he means it. No ifs, ands, or buts. And he promises, and he promised Abraham specifically, that if he did not fulfill his 
promise, his vow, his covenant, that he himself, God himself, would be cut to pieces. That is the extent to which he promised. And God cannot cease to exist. So that is how great the promise is and the vow is that God made to his people. God took it upon himself to fulfill his promises even despite our human tendency to not live up to God's standard of goodness, to reshape God into our own likeness, to insist perhaps even that there is no God. God here tells us he entered into a bond, a covenant, even you could say contract with Israel to prosper them and to give them life. Now, we're in the New Testament now, right? And we are Israel. We are God's people. And we know from hindsight that all the requirements of the covenant that God put upon the people of God have been fulfilled by Christ, have been fulfilled by Christ in his perfect life lived here and also all the ways in which we fall short of those requirements. Christ has paid for those penalties on the cross. And that is what can give us even greater confidence that this is a God of grace that we relate to, that we follow, that we obey. We come to a God who says, I don't just love you with a fuzzy feeling. I love you based on a vow and a commitment I made to you at the risk of my very own life. It's not a love that comes and goes and waxes and wanes. It's a love, again, that is founded upon his very own truthfulness and justice. And he loves us so much that he was willing to send his only son to earth to live and die for us on the cross, to suffer humiliation, misery, betrayal, wrath, and death. This is the God that David called upon in this psalm, the God of Hesed love, the God that described himself to Moses and the Israelites as the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. God loves us steadfastly. And David wants to remind us, and God through David wants to remind us first and foremost, this is what this repentance is founded on. Now, in this first section, we'll see this. God loves you steadfastly, so confess your sins to him in honesty. Remember again, David, what David had done before he penned this psalm, after he was confronted by Nathan. And it's interesting because he says in verse 4, against you, God, against you, God, And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Which sounds rather strange if you think again, well, he certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He certainly sinned against Uriah. He certainly sinned against other soldiers who might have died in his wicked plan. And he certainly sinned against all the family members involved with these people. And yet David says, against you, you only have I sinned. He's not trying to shirk the responsibility of the consequences of his actions, of his sins. What he is doing is he's recognizing that he is first and foremost in covenant relationship with God. He is ultimately accountable to the one and only judge, the God, the creator, the maker of heaven and earth. And so... He says, first and foremost, against you and you only have I sinned. And until he can grapple with that truth, 
can he really grapple with the reality of how his sin had also hurt so many others? David's coming with this brutal honesty before God about himself and his sins to confess. And it's clear from this passage that he is realizing the odiousness of what he had done, of his betrayal, his murder, and his adultery. And it's become so unbearable to him that he says to God specifically, verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. The stink of sin on his skin has become so bad that he's just crying out to God to be washed, to be cleansed. And you might be thinking, well, it's a good thing I've never committed anything as horrid as David did. I mean, that's pretty bad stuff that he did. But David here takes it a step further. He's not just confessing sin, the specific sins that he committed. He's confessing also the specific sin nature that he knows exists in himself and in all humanity. He says in verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. He's confessing to God, I'm, I'm not just a good person who's committed a few heinous sins. He says, I am in fact by nature a sinner. And he confirms this sin nature by confessing his need to be restored from the inside out. That it can't just be his outward behavior, but also his inner thoughts and his inner motives to be changed. And so he says in verse 6, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. I think if we look around humanity, we see people of all cultures, people of all generations, people of all um, ethnicities and backgrounds, and we see that we all struggle with an inclination to do wrong. If we were all basically good people, I would think there'd be a lot more good and a lot less struggle against brokenness in this world. God calls us in this psalm to look honestly upon our sins and yet not just an honesty that leads to weightiness but an honesty that comes to a God that we know again promises his steadfast love to us it's hard to be honest to ourselves and to God I know that you know my wife and I have had (laughs) we've had fights where certainly it was hard for me to see the truth that she was trying to describe to me I remember a fight that we had where she was trying to convey to me that it was really, it seemed like it was really important for me to be right all the time. And I had a really hard time with that because I just perceived myself as a person who doesn't find it that important to be right. Who's just, you know, let's, 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 let's focus on our commonality and what we agree on. And we just went back and forth, and my first reaction within my heart is, what on earth is she talking about? That's not what I'm like at all. And I start getting more upset as we we talk about it, because I'm beginning to hear her say, like, I'm arrogant, I'm overbearing, which is actually not what she said at all, but that's essentially what I interpreted in my head. And then as we keep going, I realize she's right. And the reason why it didn't connect for me is, I'm not someone who like, likes to be right just for the sake of being right. But in the, relation, in, in the context of my relationship with my wife, it's really important for me to be a good husband. It's really important to me to have an image of a good husband. Now, if I could find a way to not be right and keep up an image of being a good husband, I'd be fine with that. 
but it's hard to do that. And so, yes, I could see in the relationship with my wife why it would come across that way, why it would feel to her that I insisted on being right. And so, my wife was right. God challenged me and my pride through my wife. David had Nathan to challenge him in his sin, to call him through the power of the Holy Spirit to look honestly upon his pride, his brokenness. And we all have moments like this, really throughout our days, throughout our weeks, where we have opportunity to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with God, to see how brokenness affects different parts of our life. We don't like to look at it. We would rather not look at it. But God calls us to look honestly and to confess honestly because he's the God who loves us steadfastly. So I encourage you to do that as well. But let's continue in this psalm. In section 2, 7 through 12, uh, verses 7 through 12, we see that God loves you steadfastly. So ask him to restore you with confidence. David is asking God to stir up the cold-hearted complacency which he had with God and with the people around him. And again, look at what he did. His heart had to have been hard in order to carry out what he did. Yet he's calling God to restore him. And he does so with great confidence based on the mercy of God. Now, don't imagine that David is kind of smirking presumptuously to God. Ha ha, God, you're a God of grace, so here, forgive me. We see and hear this, it's full of emotion, this psalm, and that he, he does have sorrow for his sins. And yet at the same time, he has this confidence that God is a God of mercy, that God will respond well to his call for restoration back to, back to God. His confidence was based on the character of God, upon the compassion of God, upon the God who is faithful to his vows, the God who has a hesed love for him. Verse 7 says this and exudes the confidence that David has in God. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. He's saying, God, if you do it, it will happen. Now, hyssop was this small bushy plant that was used in cleansing rituals to sprinkle the blood of the sacrificed animal upon the person to be cleansed. And the specific rituals that this hyssop was used was generally the cleansing of lepers or the cleansing of those who have been in contact with the dead. Now, in both cases, the person needing, needing cleansing who was contaminated, and more specifically for the leper, were considered outcasts of society had to be put outside of the camp. And David says, cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. And what David is alluding to here as he connects this hyssop and this restoration is he's alluding to the scene where an outcast is welcomed back into the city after having been cleansed. Imagine Imagine being shunned and cast out, feeling like you can't be with your family, with your loved ones, with your community. And yet after the cleansing, being welcomed back to shouts of joy and festivity, it's this powerful picture of joy and gladness through God's restoration. 
He goes on to say, David, create in me a pure heart. And we should understand when he says create in here, we should think of it in the strict sense of the word of create. That God being the one, the only one to, have, to be able to supernaturally create. That was the need that David saw in his own heart for God to create a pure heart in him that he was recognizing that he himself was not able to do it in his own power, that he needed God to be the one who created in him. And that again, this power to restore was in the hands of the creator God, the redeemer God. In his book, Holiness by Grace, Brian Chapel says this, repentance is not so much a doing as a depending. It is not so much a striving for pardon as a posture of humility. In true repentance, we confess our total reliance on God's mercy. We acknowledge the inadequacy of anything we would offer God to gain his pardon. In true repentance, we rest upon God's grace rather than trying to do anything to deserve it. Chapel is right on the mark there. He's right on the mark. Repentance is a recognizing to God, I can't do it. And then relying on him to create in me a clean heart, a pure heart. I just think as humans, we have this tendency to want to earn our favor and love before God, even when it comes to repentance. We feel like we have to put on a good show for God in our repentance. And I've seen that in all manner of faith, that people in different practices of religion want to earn their place before God. We, we, we see practice of self-flagellation in the Christian tradition. I don't know if this is true, but there's this strange object in the pastor's office in, in the church we just bought. I have no idea what it's for other than it looks like a torture instrument. And I was like, maybe someone used this for self-flagellation. I really don't know what this cow prod looking thing is. Um, but it, it makes me think too, in the Philippines, which has a strong Catholic tradition, Every Easter, it is common for some people to literally crucify themselves, not lethally so, because they still want to live, not lethally so, but to imitate it in such a way that they can experience some of which Christ went through on the cross for them. I think of when I lived in Hong Kong, and there's this huge Buddha on top of a hill with, I don't know, hundreds of steps that lead up to it. And I remember visiting that site one time, and there was this old lady She was crawling up each step and bowing her head hard on every step all the way to the top to see Buddha. And I think of scenes I've seen in the news. I can't remember what year this was, but it was a time when Shiite Muslims had had, um, their freedom of religion given to them. And what they were doing in celebration of all things was flogging themselves, cutting their heads till blood poured down. There's something in our brokenness that wants to beat ourselves to earn our favor before God. And I want to say to you, stop beating yourself up. I see it in so many people in so many different ways, whether it's physically or emotionally or spiritually or psychologically. God doesn't need us to beat ourselves in order to come before him. We can come before him confidently upon his mercy, not presumptuously, 
but confident that he is the God of mercy who has promised to deliver us and restore us. Praise be to God that that is the kind of God that he is and that we can hear these words in Isaiah, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength. That we can take these words and take them to heart. He is not a God who needs us to beat ourselves. He is a God who desires for us to come in confidence in his mercy as we ask for his restoration. The psalm ends in the last section, verses 13 through 19, reminding us that God loves you steadfastly. Worship him in brokenness. In this last section, David gives his response to God's restoration of him. And that's worship. Now, when I say worship, I don't just mean singing songs of praise, although certainly David himself says he wants to sing of God's righteousness. And he asks God to open his lips that he might praise, that he might sing God's praise. But when I say worship, I mean David wanted to give all of his life as worship in response to God's restoration of him. He says in verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Part of that worship, he's one, he just was like, I'm so grateful, I want to go out and tell everyone about your greatness, about who you are, about your love, about your restoration. But in verse 16, David really gets to the heart of things literally. He says this, you do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David's saying that worship is not just a bunch of rituals. It's not just an outward performance of faith. David is saying that worship that is most pleasing to God is a worship that comes in humility, in dependence, in brokenness. A worship that comes from a broken spirit and a broken heart, recognizing our need for God's grace and forgiveness. And that brokenness that's described here is a state that is really despised by the world. We don't want to show our weakness. We don't want to hit rock bottom. We don't want to be broken, whether publicly or personally. We want to have it together. And yet God always in his counter-cultural way says, no, the place you need to be before me is brokenness to understand your dependence upon me. I remember a college friend of mine was going through a lot of really hard stuff and another friend of ours says, hey, you know, and as lovingly as possible said, hey, maybe you should consider getting some counseling. And this college mutual friend of ours just completely freaked out, blew up, what are you saying? Why do I need counseling? How dare you? That kind of response. David tells us we don't need to be afraid, certainly of counseling, but just of being in that place of brokenness that means we need help from people or from God. We don't need to be afraid of that because that is the place in which we find God most deeply. We find his love and grace most deeply. The beauty of the truth is that God loves you so steadfastly that you can come before him confidently knowing that he loves you, that you can come before him honestly, which he already knows your heart, right? So you can be honest because he already knows your heart. But we don't have to be afraid to face 
our own worst traits, our own worst sins. God knows our hearts already. He knows our brokenness. He's already paid for the price of that brokenness on the cross, has already offered restoration to us. All we need to do is to come before him and say, God, I need you. I humble myself before you. I confidently take hold of your grace, your promise to deliver me based on a promise you made on your own life, which you actually came through on by sacrificing yourself through Jesus Christ. I encourage you, don't be afraid to come before the Lord our God in honesty. He will restore you. He does love you. We are his beloved. Let's pray.